In the second century AD, church historian Tertullian recorded that the Roman government became very interested in the fast growth of the Christian church. And so they were trying to figure out what's the attraction. So they actually sent spies into the churches to try to figure out why people were attracted to these Christians and these gatherings. And the spies came back with this report. These Christians are a very strange people. I think we could all agree with that, right? (laughs) They said they meet in an empty room to worship. They have no image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any moment. I want to pause right there because that was one of the things that made the early church so powerful is that they believed in the soon return of Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. The spies concluded, though, by saying this, and my how they love him and how they love one another. What a compelling and attractive way to describe the followers of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you today, what would unbelievers say about the church today? Is there anything attractive about us? That the unbelievers, that those outside the church would look at us and, and, and be enamored or be encouraged because there, there's something about us that just seems so different. Besides the fact that we go to church on Sundays and we try to be moral people. You know, this past year has been one of, a, in many ways, a bad witness for the church. Because what People on the outside of the church have been seeing of us inside of the church on places like social media and different, you know, platforms like that is a lot of infighting. A lot of going back and forth and conflicts and divisions over things like politics and, and things like, um, race relations and COVID and mass and meetings. And, and in some ways you could say the church sort of got a, a black eye over this past year. In fact, I've said it before that in many ways, I think that we as the big C church have been doing the devil's work for him. I think the devil looks at us and he's kind of laughing because we've in all of our fighting going on amongst believers that it's sort of like, you know, they're doing their their work for us. Who would want to join them because they can't get along? I think Jesus has been weeping and the devil has been laughing because the church in some ways, is not very attractive right now to those who are on the outside. But Peter gives us some insight here of how we can change that. In fact, look at verse 8 again. He says, finally. Now, Peter, when he says this, is not wrapping up his letter, but he's wrapping up this section where he's been talking about our conduct amongst unbelievers. This section started in verse 12 of chapter 2, where he talked about how we are to live honorably amongst those who are unbelievers. And if we are living honorably amongst those who are unbelievers, we can actually impact them for Jesus. And so over the last several weeks, we've talked about and looked at what Peter tells us about living honorably as believers in relation to government, living honorably as believers in relationship to uh, our place and conduct in the workplace, 
living honorably in the home so that unbelievers in the home, be it spouses or parents or siblings or children, that they can see Jesus in us. That's been the focus. And then at verse 8 of chapter 3, he comes to this place where he says, finally, all of you. And Peter takes us now to the fourth area of our social interaction, and that's the church. When he says all of you, he's talking to us as believers, and and he's talking about how Christian believers really interact with one another. You see, most unbelievers aren't going to come to a gathering like this. They're not going to step inside of a church. So what they're going to learn from Jesus is going to come from watching you and watching me. The old adage is true that says that some of us might be the only Bible that some people read. In fact, it's interesting, we're going to look at this next week, in verse 15, look at verse 15, Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. And I want to ask you this question, why would somebody that you know who's not a Christian ask that question of you? What is it about you, what is it about me, that would prompt a non-Christian to say, hey, what's your secret? What makes you tick? I've been watching you, and there's something different about you. What is it? That's kind of Peter's focus here. You know, in the beginning of the year, we laid out that God had given us for this year, 2021, two words for our church, and the words were deep and wide. That we want to grow deep in our love and knowledge of Jesus, and we want to grow wide in our reach. Well, Peter in this text gives us six descriptions that should be seen in us that are really different from the way the world operates, or the way the world's mindset is. And these are the type of things that if they're flowing in us, that those who are on the outside are going to be like, hey, there's something different about those people, and we're going to break that down today. So we, number one, if you're taking notes, he's calling us to be like-minded. He says, finally, be of one mind. Now I've got to ask you, is that even possible to be of one mind? You know, what most of us would define like-mindedness as is this, you agreeing with me. That's like-mindedness. That's, that's our mentality. You know, somebody agrees with me, we are like-minded. And, and we kind of have sometimes an attitude of, hey, this is what I think, and you should agree with that. That's not what the Bible's talking about. That's not unity. That's uniformity. And uniformity is forced. And that's not what God calls us to. You see, God knows that in the body of Christ, He knows there's going to be differences. You know, if we were right now going to just open up our service to a discussion on maybe something like politics, or maybe even on the style of clothing, or what's appropriate to watch on, you know, television. We would open up a can of worms because there would be a whole lot of differing opinions. We don't agree on everything. In fact, it's been said if two people agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. You know, I have views on eschatology, end times events, the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium. I have views on the Holy Spirit. 
and his ministry and work. And some of you don't agree with me on those views. You don't share those same views. And that's okay. I always want to be gracious enough to give you the right to be wrong. Okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sort of. <laughs> but the early church didn't even agree on certain things. They didn't agree on the idea of meat sacrifice to idols. They didn't agree on the keeping of the Sabbath. They didn't agree even on, you know, what were the right days to worship. And they didn't agree on how widows should be taken care of. There was a litany of things that the early church disagreed on, and they had to work through those things. So this is not a calling to thinking alike, but this is a calling to being like-minded. Having one mind or like-mindedness, I would describe in this way, that it's cooperation in the midst of diversity. And this is really what the Bible teaches. That Paul gives the analogy of the human body when he says, hey, we are the body of Christ. And just like the human body is made up of many different parts that are diverse, your hand is not like your ear, but your human body works in a way where there's cooperation amongst the diversity. And when there isn't cooperation amongst the diversity, when one part of the body just isn't functioning rightly in conjunction with the rest of the body, we call that a handicap. We might call that, in a very severe way, a paralysis. So Paul is talking about the body of Christ when he says, hey, we are many members, but we make up one body. And what God is calling us to is cooperation in the midst of our diversity. It's the very thing that Jesus prayed for. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed this, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one, that the world may believe that you sent me. Interesting. Lord, I want them to see. I want them to be one. Because if they're one, I mean, all these people from different backgrounds and cultures and races, and and there's a oneness about them, there's a unity amongst them, that's going to signal to the rest of the world, that's a God thing. That's a supernatural thing. Those people that belong to Jesus, something is going on there. Now, God has given us in his church what we call essentials. And there are certain things that we must agree on as believers. For instance, the nature of God. We must agree on that. We must agree on the person and work of Jesus, that he was God in human flesh that came to this earth, that took our place by dying upon a cross, and three days later he rose again from the dead, and he is coming back. Those are essentials. In fact, you cannot be a Christian if you don't believe in those things. Those are core issues that we all need to be in agreement and one mind on those things. There's no room for differing opinions as it relates to those core essentials of the faith. But there are secondary issues. And we can be of one mind that they are secondary issues. That concerning some of these secondary issues, differing opinions is okay. Now, one of the things that we need to hold to as believers is that we're not going to major on minor issues. Because when we major on minor issues, when we divide and fight over non-essentials, you know what we look like? We look like toddlers. 
How many of you have toddlers at home? Raise your hand. Raise them high, those of you who have toddlers. Okay, look around these. Pray for these people that have toddlers. Okay. You know, what's interesting, though, about toddlers is toddlers have their own rules. They have a whole set of laws. For instance, these are property laws of toddlers. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're playing with something and you put it down, it's automatically mine. And finally, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) That's the toddler mentality. It's all about me. I'm always right. You're always wrong. Now, that might be fine for toddlers, but that's not fine for us who are to be mature believers in Jesus Christ. You see, as followers of Jesus, the watchword isn't mine, but it's yours. It's not me, but it's you. It's not self, but it's others. So as it relates to essentials and non-essentials, here's a good basis to go off of. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. In other words, we're giving grace to have differing opinions. So in essentials, unity, non-essentials, charity, and in all things, love. So the first thing that Peter tells us here is that we're to be like-minded. We need to see the big picture, in other words. The second thing he tells us is to be compassionate. He says, having compassionate, and we get our English word sympathy from this Greek word compassion. It literally means to feel the same thing. Here's the best definition I've ever found of the word compassion. It means your hurt in my heart. Your hurt, your pain in my heart. And really, that should be the norm for all of us if we really realize that we are connected as a body. It's why Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 12. He says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So somebody's celebrating, we're rejoicing with them. They're weeping, they're going through, we're weeping with them. In 1 Corinthians, Paul put it this way. If one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. And if one member of the body is honored, we all are honored together. That's having compassion. It's feeling together. So he tells us here, be like-minded, be compassionate. Number three, he says, be loving. Love as brothers, he says. Now, some of you are thinking, love as brothers? Me and my brothers, we fought all the time. What's he talking about? That doesn't compute to you. I I remember when I was growing up, you know, my brother, Albert, he's six years younger than me. So when I was 16 and he was like 10, I came home one day. I used to, my first car was this big Buick LeSabre. I think my parents thought I was going to be a bad driver, and so they gave me a tank to drive in case I got in a wreck. It's a humongous thing. And I come home, and I'm getting ready to pull into the driveway, and I notice my brother has like all, he's got, our driveway looks like a city. There's roads and cars and army men and like all this stuff spread out, and he's out there playing. And I said, Albert, move your stuff. He goes, no, park in the street. 
I said, Albert, move your stuff. He says, no, 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 park in the street. I said, Albert, if you don't move your stuff, I'm going to run it over. He goes, please park in the street. Well, I pulled in and I ran over all of his stuff. Great big brother that I was. He got so mad. He's yelling at me. And he's going inside the house to, to right, right where the garage is, right in front of the car. And he's getting ready to go in and tell my mom and dad. And I grabbed him by the arm. And my little brother reaches down, puts his shoulder right underneath my gut, and picks me up and throws me on the hood of the car. From that moment on, I thought, I need to be nice to him. <laughs> so really, this should read, love as brothers should. Okay, And Jesus gave, gave us a great example of what that was to look like. On the night before he went to the cross in the upper room, what does he do? He takes the lowest form of a servant and he washes all the disciples' feet. And what's interesting about that is, you know, when those guys would bathe in the morning because they wore sandals and walked around on the dirt all day long, the part of them that would get dirty would be their feet. And so they'd go into houses and there would be a servant who would wash their feet. And Jesus, that's what he did. He took that, that form of the servant. And then he said to them, hey, you should do to one another as I have done to you. What does that mean for us? Well, all of us, we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But as we interact through our daily lives in this world... We get dirty. And we can wash one another's feet by showing grace to one another. Giving each other grace. Giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Learning how to serve one another. On that same night, Jesus would say to his disciples, you're to love one another as I have loved you, and greater love hath no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And this is what the world needs to see in us. This is something, if they see this in us, it's so different from what they see in anybody else. They need to see that we are people who learn and know how to extend grace to each other, to be gracious, to be people who serve and seek to take care of others, people who are not quick to point out each other's flaws. So he says to be loving, Number three. Number four, he tells us to be tender-hearted. Now, this is a difficult word to translate because the original word tender-hearted literally speaks of your intestines, your kidney, your guts, your heart, your liver. So the literal translation of this would read this way, have good bowels. <laughs> Some of you are going, did he just say that in church? Well, that's literally how it reads. Why does it read that way? Well, 2,000 years ago in the ancient world, they believed that the deepest emotion that anybody could have would come from their intestinal region. Now, we kind of get that because we say a similar thing today. We'll say, hey, what's your gut telling you? Or we'll talk about, you know, intestinal fortitude. A lot of people have the fear of public speaking. So some of you, if I asked you to come up here and, and say something, you'd begin to feel it in your gut. You'd get butterflies and you would start to feel a bit nauseated. You'd be like, I don't, I don't feel very good. Some of you might even feel like you, know, you're, you were going to throw up because you're feeling it in your intestinal region. So the deepest emotions were felt in that region. And so this could be better rendered this way. You must de be deeply concerned for others. Let me put it this way. 
The church ought to be a place where the walking wounded feel at home. Christians should be people that those who are hurting can find refuge in. And here's what that means. That means we can't be self-absorbed. We can't be those who don't notice those who are hurting around us. I want to ask you this question. Do you notice people who are hurting around you? And if you do, how do you respond? What do you think when you see them? You know, when I was a kid, way different world than today. I'd go down to the mall with my mom. She loved to go to Sears in the mall by our house. And she'd go to try on clothes, and she would leave me outside of the dressing room area in the women's department, you know. And so I would just kind of be hanging out. I was like seven years old. And sometimes she would spend a long time in there trying on her clothes. And I would think as I was maybe wandering around that I lost her. And so I get this just feeling inside of me like, where's my mom? And I remember one time I actually started crying and the security guy came up to me and he was like, you know, what's wrong? I'm like, I lost my mommy, you know. So anytime I see a lost little boy or girl now, Man, I just feel it inside of me. I move into action like, okay, we got to help you find your your mom or help you find, find your dad. Let me ask you this question. Do you remember what it felt like to be lost spiritually? Do you remember that? Remember the emptiness you felt inside? Remember the frustration when you couldn't figure out, you know, how to fill the void that nothing seemed to satisfy? Do you remember that? We need to remember that when we see people on the outside that don't know Jesus. So he's telling us here to be like-minded, being compassionate, be loving, be tender-hearted. And then number five, he says, be courteous. As he's talking about saying please and thank you, no. Literally, this would be rendered in this way, be humble-minded. And this would be a shock to the people living at this particular time in this Greco-Roman society because humble-minded was not considered a virtue. It was considered a weakness. Only weak people, they said, are humble people. And when the Greeks conquered people, they would say this, we're going to turn them into humble-minded people. And what they meant, they're going to become our slaves. The Greeks loved such qualities as self-confidence, self-esteem self-assertiveness they would have loved the swagger of the modern day hip-hop artist they would have loved you know clint eastwood in his dirty harry movies when he'd say go ahead make my day they would love that so then they'd be like yeah peter's going no i don't want you to have that type of mentality be humble-minded it's been said humility is the grease that keeps the gears of relationships running smoothly I love what the writer F.B. Meyer once said. He said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other. And the taller you grow in Christian grace, the more easily you could take them. I have now come to realize that God's gifts are on shelves one below the other. And it's not a matter of growing taller, but of stooping lower. Being humble-minded. You know who Peter's describing here in these five traits? He's describing Jesus. This is how Jesus was. 
Jesus would look at the multitude, it says, and he'd have compassion on them because he'd see them as being like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus loved unconditionally. He had had such a heart for the, the less fortunate. Remember on the cross? Jesus, you see, he understood also the lostness of man. And that's why on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You realize sometimes the people that are around you that are acting crazy, they really don't know what they're doing. It's, it's a part of their lostness. What Peter's describing here for us is Jesus, and this is what gives us great comfort because these traits he's describing, they don't come to us naturally, do they? Because by nature, in our fallenness, we're all selfish. But here's the comfort. Here's the encouragement that we have. The closer you and I get to Jesus the more that we start moving from our naturalness to supernatural, from natural reactions to supernatural reactions. The more you and I get closer to Jesus, the more that we become like him. So Peter gives us here this five-fold description of what the world needs to see in us. But there's a sixth, and the sixth one is harder. You see, up to this point, Peter's been talking about people who like you. Other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, people who are nice to you, but in verse 9, he starts talking about those people that don't like us. Now, that could be another Christian, because let's be honest, that happens in the church, right? But it also could be unbelievers. Notice what he says there in verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing. What's number six? Be a blessing. We can sum it up this way. He's saying return meanness with kindness and insults with blessings. You see, when people are being mean, be it a believer or an unbeliever, Peter's saying don't hit back. Don't fight back. Don't yell back. Instead, bless them. And I think we're going like, really? Are you serious? Yeah, Peter says you were called to this. When? Well, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus, he's the one who calls us to this. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. True story. There was a pastor's son, kind of a strapping young man. But he used to get picked on all the time in his high school because people thought he was a goody-goody because he was a Christian. So one day this guy came up and pushed him from behind and this this, uh, pastor's son turned around and the guy popped him right in the cheek. And the pastor's son, like I said, he was a big kid. He, He says, I dare you to do that on this side. And so the guy hit him again on the other side. He turned the other cheek and then he beat the heck out of that kid. (laughs) That hit him. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about, okay? I don't think that was his point. Jesus wasn't just telling us that we should be pushovers. But he was saying this, that we should repay evil with kindness. Put it this way, kill him with kindness. That was Jesus' motto. People who are mean, you see, usually nine times out of ten are people who are hurting. And their reactions are just symptoms of the hurt 
and the depravity that they are dealing with inside. So when you treat people who are mean to you with kindness, you know what it does? It disarms them. They don't know how to respond. And this is what Peter's point is. He's saying, look, you've been blessed by God. God has shown grace to you. Show grace to others. You've been blessed to be a blessing. And you know what? This is a powerful tool in witnessing as well. In fact, I came across a fascinating study. It was actually called Blessers versus Converters. And the study was based on two teams of missionaries that went to Thailand. And they both went to Thailand with two distinctly different missional strategies. The quote-unquote converters went with the sole intention of just converting people evangelizing people. The blessers went with the intention of just blessing people. They said, wherever God sends us, we're going to seek to be a blessing to the people who are around us. Well, after two years, here's what they discovered. First, they discovered that the blessers' presence in the community resulted in a tremendous amount of social good. They couldn't say that about the converters. Secondly, this was surprising. The blessers actually had 50 times as many conversions as the converters. In other words, the blessers helped 50 times more people make their way back to God. Here's what I want to encourage you, church. I want to encourage you to pray, Lord, show me how to be a blessing to people in my sphere of influence. Lord, show me. Show me what it looks like for me This week at my work, to be a blessing, to bless people around me. Show me, Lord, what it looks like to be a blessing to people in my neighborhood. I guarantee you this, church, if you pray that, if you ask God that, he's going to blow your mind. If you pray and and he's going to talk to you, he's going to tell you what it looks like, and if you do it, your mind is going to be blown at how God works and uses you in that. Well, last of all, we see here the results of living this way in verses 10 through 12. Peter's quoting here from Psalm 34. Notice, he says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. In other words, watch how you talk. He's been talking about that. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Live uprightly. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Pursue being peacemakers. I mean, that's so contrary to the mindset and attitude of the world around us. And then he says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Two results. Number one, you're going to love life and see good days. That's the first thing he says. You're going to find yourself, you just start living in this type of way where you want to be a blessing to others and treat others the way that Jesus has treated you. You're going to just find yourself loving life and others are going to enjoy having you around. They're going to enjoy being with you. You know, Proverbs says, the power of death and life are in the tongue. So you can be, we can be people who are either speaking death into others in situations, or we can be speaking life into others in situations. 
Peter's saying, hey, you want to be somebody who's speaking life? You want to enjoy life? You want to really hey, enjoy, you know, others enjoy you being around? Be this. You're going to love life and see good days. The second result is this. He says, the eyes and the ears of God will be towards you. Now, this phrase, the eyes in the, of the Lord being toward his people throughout the Old Testament really speaks of a watchful affection. The eyes and the ears of the Lord being upon you. A watchful affection, not, not, a, not a judgment. It's that watchful, that sense of like, that's my boy. That's my girl. That's my grandchild. It's like when a parent or a grandparent goes and, you know, they're watching the kid at, at their school play and they got their phone out. Everybody videotapes now, right? And they got their phone out and they, they're, they're, you see them, you know, videoing and then you watch it afterwards and the whole time they're zeroed in on Johnny who all he is in the, in the play is a tree. It's like you have no idea what the rest of the play was about. You hear the dialogue, but all you're seeing is the reactions of the tree of Johnny because that's my boy. I love him. Oh, yeah, look at him. You know, they're all excited about, you know, he's picking his nose. Oh, look at that. You know, they're all excited. That's all they're, they're viewing on. That's God's heart towards you as his child. I love Spurgeon's insight on this. Speaking of God, he put it this way. He observes them with approval and tender consideration. They are so dear to him that he cannot take his eyes off of them. He watches each one of them as carefully and intently as if they were the only creature in the universe. His ears are open under their cry. His whole mind is occupied about them. If slighted by all others, they are not neglected by him. Their cries, their cry he hears at once, even as a mother is sure to hear her sick babe. And he is not slow to answer his children's voice. That's God's heart toward you. Isn't that amazing? That's his heart toward you. He's watching you with that heart of affection. That should give you great confidence today, church. Now, when I was playing ball when I was growing up, whether it was basketball or baseball or football, I'd always look for my dad in the stands. And I'd love it when our eyes would catch and he'd give me a thumbs up. Or he'd give me a like, you got this, son. I love that. His eyes watching and knowing that, my dad, he's, he's for me. Now, my mom made her presence real known. She'd get behind home plate when I was playing baseball and she'd yell out, if you hit a home run, I'll buy you a milkshake. <laughs> And I appreciated that too. Ice cream's always a way to my heart, but but I loved how tuned in my dad was. You know, he wasn't off at the snack bar. He wasn't. No, he was watching me. That's God. He's watching you. But there's a contrast to this, because Peter also says his face is against them that do evil. The evil and the rebellious he looks at differently. His face, see, this is the idea, his face. It's like you can, you can tell what's going on by, by what you see in his face. In the Old Testament, this idea of the face of God being toward a people, oftentimes, most often, was seen as judgment. 
But you can see on his face there's the sorrow, the grief, even the anger at those who are doing and treating others unjustly. It's Jesus when he goes into the temple where the religious leaders have turned it into a, a swat meeting. They're taking advantage of others. And sight of Jesus we, we never ever like to think about. It's Rambo Jesus. He fashions a whip. Think of that. A whip. He's coming in. Crack! And he's turning over tables and driving out these people who are ripping off others. His face toward them. One of anger. So I ask you this question. What do you want God's face to be towards you? Love? A sense of, that's my child. Or anger? Well, it all depends on your relationship to Jesus. Are you yielded to Jesus? Have you given your heart to Jesus? That's why at the very beginning, as we've been talking about this whole idea of our conduct in culture, and Peter's been talking to us about submission in various elements that we've put it this way, submission, no matter where we're talking about it, always begins with being submitted to Jesus. And as his followers, we're saying, Lord, I want my life to be a blessing for you. So I'm going to take my P's and Q's from your word. And I want to live the way that you want me to live. And I'm going to trust in your presence and your spirit and your power to live through me. And as we do that, oh man, the world can look on and be like, what's the deal? That person, that guy, that gal, they're so different. That's what God wants to see in us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this picture that Peter is painting for us here. And though difficult, we're also thankful that you have given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your grace. That your very person fills our lives so that your commandments become our enablements as we seek to live for you and bless you. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who maybe is not in a right relationship with you that they today would turn their hearts to you. They'd ask you to forgive them and cleanse them and come into their life and to be their Lord and be their Savior. Lord, I thank you for this church, this church family that I'm just so blessed to be a part of. And Lord, I pray that people would see in us here at Calvary Vista something so radically different, it would prompt them to ask, what's the deal? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.